0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right
1: for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number.
2: Children of the night, come on into the cabin. Virginia is getting pretty warm and sticky, even at night, isn't it? Come on in and get settled. We have a bit of business before we get on to our stories. Every year or so, we ask our listeners for a bit of money to help keep the lights on. This is the time we get that started, and over the next four episodes, this one included, we will hear from Mr. Tony C. Scott, the mayor of the District of Wonders. To preface his words a bit, This year is a rough one for the district, and the money that has been keeping the lights on has been coming primarily out of Tony's wallet. That is no longer an option, and for the five, yes, five, people who regularly contribute to Tales of Terrify's coffers, thank you, but it'll no longer be enough. So, now, we will be hearing from Mr. Smith.
3: Hello, everyone. My name is Tony C Smith. As you know, or as you might not know, I am the host of Starship Sofa Tales to Terrify sister podcast over there. And well, I guess I guess you could call us, you know, call us the boss of Tales to Terrify. Stephen is doing a fantastic job there, along with everyone who's behind the scenes working there. But I just needed to kind of let you know how kind of at this moment how things are. Sitting for Tales to Terrify. Like I said, Stephen's doing a fantastic job. Figures, download figures, are absolutely amazing. You're kind of right up there now with Starship Sova, And Starship Sova has been going nearly 10 years. Tales to Terrify, you know, a couple of years there, a few years. And same kind of figures there now. We're probably getting, for the Tales to Terrify, around about 4,000 a week. You know, possibly odd shows hitting up to the 5,000 downloads you know that is just staggering you know what Larry started and set away Stevens just took it by the, the horns and just made this show a brilliant show you know I, I couldn't ask for anything more I just let Stephen get on with it you know and everyone else who like works there just to run it how the the sea fit and everything is going great when I say everything <laughs> not everything you know we are now getting to the kind of stage where Things need to change a little bit. If they don't, then unfortunately it might not last. I know Stephen's kind of worried about kind of staff changes, and I don't want to kind of put pressure on Stephen to kind of start looking for other staff changes or anything, or even in the future if we need staff changes before we kind of get some other, you know, I'll get one actual structure of the show right. We need to kind of make sure. Tales to Terrify is kind of supported by the listeners. And that is purely by donations. You know, Starship's over, survives, and we're kind of going on. The listeners over there all kind of contribute. We've got, like, the monthly donations. And with Tales to Terrify, the amount of people that's listening, you know, like I say, some some weeks you get nearly 5,000 downloads. You know, 5,000 people are listening to Tales to Terrify, what Stephen and everyone's created. On my, you know, download figures or kind of the, the donations that come in, five people donate monthly. Five people, you know, donate to Tales to Terrify to keep it going. That isn't that isn't going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Can it, it cannot happen? We'll kind of keep on going. Tales to Terrify cannot survive without people's donations. Do you know what I mean? There must be people out there who kind of, you know, want to kind of help Tales to Terrify. You know, it just needs to kind of, some sort of kind of grounding, like a monthly donations to keep it going so we can kind of stop worrying about that and, you know, just keep on making the shows. And, you know, like to say, I want to get all that kind of groundwork where the show is supported before, you know, Stephen now has to kind of go out and looking for other things, you know, like other, say, staff members and everything like that. I want all that sorted out first. If it doesn't get sorted... You know, who knows? I certainly can't keep it going just, you know, out of my pocket. You know, we kind of had this kind of conflict or we had this kind of upset, should I say, with Starship Sova. And my wife, you know, sat us down. And I I'm, I cannot, you know, take it out of the house funds to pay for this show. And that was what happened with Starship Sova. And I had to kind of tell everyone over there, listen, it, it kind of, you know, I'm getting wrong. Do you know what I mean? We're kind of, it's putting... My livelihood, my kind of, you know, household, the kids, and everything like that. I'm I'm dipping into the house funds to kind of make, you know, Starship Silva, and that's exactly now what I'm having to do for Tales to Terrify. Five people are donating, which you know, thank you so much. But we need some support from other members to kind of keep start, you know, st- Starship Silva, keep Tales to Terrify going. It has to be put in there. If you come onto the front of the website. £2.50 a month, if everyone just did that, do you know what I mean? This show would be immense, do you know what I mean? The things we could do with it. You know, there's a donation there for £5, £10, whatever you feel. We need support for Tales to Terrify. I do want to kind of, you know, I'm so desperate not to kind of lose the legacy of what kind of Larry did and everything, you know, and just set the groundwork and all the work Stephen's put in. I don't want to lose it. You know, I've lost two shows already, Crime City Central and you know Protecting Project Pulp. I've got to be brutal and I've got to kind of close them down if you know if it's kind of affecting the kind of my home kind of finances. And like I say, with Tales to Terrify, there's enough surely, 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 there's enough people out there that would kind of donate and support and help with carry on. Cause we've probably got well, I think Stephen was saying there's probably about maybe 10 shows in the offering and then it's, you know, it's not looking good. So 10 weeks and then we're kind of, we're getting to this kind of sticky water where some big and nasty decisions have to be made. And it would break me up, to be quite honest, to kind of have to close down Tales to Terrify. I want your support. Stephen wants your support. You know, God bless you, soul. Larry would love your support. You know, I know... He's Wherever he is, he's looking down and he's happy as, as they're calling the term, happy as Larry. You know, the way the show has gone, you know, let's not kind of let this go. You know, Tales of Terrify is one of the leading now horror podcasts. I remember when Larry started it. First, the first week, we got 15 downloads. 15 people listened to it. now. Like I say, you know, you there's you sometimes hitting nearly 5,000 people. And of that, five people donate monthly. Please support the show. We want to keep this going as long as possible. You know, right into the future. And it would be lovely to do so, but we can't at this moment. We cannot do it. Do you know what I mean? There is an end, and it it's probably got 10 weeks, if that. So... Do the right thing. Come over to the front of the website. Just through PayPal, two fifty, five pound or ten pound, you know. Choose your choose your option there and just make sure we keep this going.
2: Thank you, Tony. We'll be hearing from Tony over the next three weeks as well. Now, on to our stories for the evening. We'll be hearing from Troy Blackford and Alan Baxter this evening. First up will be Troy's story, Ghost in the Machine. Troy Blackford is a 29-year-old writer who lives in the Twin Cities. He currently has 17 published short stories, five works available on Kindle and paperback, and a host of short stories on his website, TroyBlackford.com. Of course, the link will be in the show notes. Also, he's married, and his first child was born in July of 2013. He likes reading. He likes writing. He likes cats. And now... Troy Blackford's ghost in the machine.
4: In the months since the car accident which claimed his life, my father's old computer has sat silent and unused in the dusty, long-unentered room he kept as a home office. The old man was the only one who ever went in there, and only he knew the password to unlock the now ancient desktop. To the surviving family members, my mom, my brother, and I, the computer was useless. Still, when it came to getting rid of it, so far something has held each of us back. We weren't exactly chomping at the bit to get in there and erase the signs of the guy's life. That luxury was already being provided by time itself. We weren't anxious to speed the process along. He may have been a bit rough, but he was, after all, the old man. Sometimes I stick my head in that old office of his and just take a few big whiffs. They say that of all the senses, the olfactory is the most apt to trigger memories. I can definitely sense enough of the built-up decades of the man's presence lingering in that front room to trigger a barrage of recollections, even months after the guy had last set foot in there. What my father used to spend his time up here actually doing, I'm not too sure. One day, I suppose, I could flip on the dusty old antique upstairs, and try and figure out the man's password. Maybe he said a really stupid password hint, one that was so easy to guess that he might as well not even have a password. Lots of the older folk do that. It's like a generational thing. But, for now, I'm more than happy just to keep it on my to-do list. Because as soon as I actually try, it won't feel like an option anymore. As soon as I try, I'll either succeed or fail. And as long as I keep putting it off, it'll feel like something I have a choice in doing. The last thing, really, involving my father's life that I can say that about. So I think I'll just keep it under my hat for now. File 1. Read this first.txt By now, you know what happened. I don't know if you suspect why, but I'm inclined to believe you don't. You three always were trusting souls. Patricia especially. She never thought I had anything going on upstairs, which served me pretty well in these last few months. Now that I've typed that out, it looks cruel. Can't be helped. The truth is cruel in almost every instance, and I'm not going to feel personally guilty for a whole universe worth of suffering. I had to live in it too, remember? Anyway, between the two boys... I think William will be the first to try to open this computer up and discover its secrets. In fact, William might be the only one of you three to suspect there might be secrets. That's why, in some ways, he's always been my favorite. I can only guess at how much time has passed between when I bite the big one, not far off now, and when somebody actually reads this. I'm willing to wager it won't be less than six months. In fact, I'm more than half concerned none of you will even try. Again, though, I'm counting on William. If not for his mild form of inquisitiveness, then because he's a sentimental coot. In any event, you're probably wondering what's going on here. What's it all about, Alfie? Well, I'll tell you when I'm good and ready to. That's why I've set the remaining two of these files to unlock after exactly 24 and 48 hours, respectively. Make sure you leave the computer on in the intervening time. But by all means, come back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat computer desktop, and click on to be opened 24 hours later.txt. And I'll try to start the real explanation. Consider this, if you will, merely a prelude. Dad was right. I was the only one who ever bothered trying to get into his computer. At first, Mom, if you'll believe it, thought we could sell it at a garage sale. I said, Mom, you can't just sell Dad's computer. We need to clean off the hard drive first, at the very least. I told her it might have his tax stuff, bills, all his saved passwords and pictures. Stuff we wouldn't want to just give out to strangers. Besides, I added, that computer's so old it's not worth anything anymore. Mom has no head for this kind of stuff. She tells me to get everything off it if I can because she wants it out of the house. If the thing's garbage, it should be thrown out. Dad was right about that, too. I guess I am the sentimentalist in the family. Mom says the thing's old and full of dust. She's right there, but it's full of memories, too. So I went up and sat down in front of the rickety computer desk, flipped on the monitor, and punched power on the tower. Plumes of dust shot out of the computer's fan vent like a burst of confetti. This was exactly what I had expected. The man had left himself eminently hackable. I dutifully typed Mississippi and struck enter. I was dismayed to see that the keystroke felt crunchy, as though there were about six boxes worth of Oreo crumbs mashed down into the space under the keys. I started looking at the keyboard, trying to determine just how old it was. I noticed, for example, that there was no Windows key, an innovation standardized nearly 20 years ago, when the ping of an error notification called my attention back up to the monitor. Incorrect password. That kind of threw me. Apparently, the old man was a bit craftier with his password hint than I had suspected. I frowned, trying to think of an answer that my father would have approved of. After a minute or so, it hit me like an inappropriate bolt out of the blue. I felt guilty for even thinking of it. But I tried to reassure myself that it was my father's voice, more so than my own, that had spoken the answer in my head. It turned out that the voice, inappropriate or not, had been correct. Ray Charles, I typed. And after the interminable pause of ancient computational machinery going through its digital paces, the aged desktop began to load itself. Son of a bitch, I said, trying not to laugh at my father's sense of humor and not entirely succeeding. That's when I saw the set of three files evenly centered on the screen. Read this first. To be opened 24 hours later. And final message. I tried opening the second message immediately after reading the first, obviously. The idea that my father might have crashed that car on purpose was too shocking. I had to know right away. No dice. However bad at keeping his vents and keyboard clean the old man was, he was apparently just a bit trickier with computers than we ever gave him credit for. He had managed to put some kind of lockout on the files. I thought of the password hint and saw again that there seemed to be more going on with dad than I had thought. I did as the text file told me and left the computer running. I don't know what to do. I felt like I shouldn't tell Kevin and Mom until I read through all three messages. I know that they might be upset when they find out I've been holding out on them for two days. But I just have to be certain. It's kind of intense news to lay upon your family. And I want to find out what all this is about before I say anything to them. I almost considered giving the vents a little blast with the can of pressurized air I kept for my own well-tended computer, lest the ancient motherboard overheat and melt down. I decided it wouldn't be worth the trouble. The antique thing can last another two days. I guess when it comes right down to it, I'm kind of lazy. File 2 To be opened 24 hours later.txt Good, you left it on. I can tell, you know, even though I'm dead. Inductive reasoning. You see, the file's timer wouldn't have counted down the 24 hours if you hadn't left the tower on. So I better spill at least part of the secret, though I'm sure you realize at this point that the real answers aren't going to be forthcoming until tomorrow's message. That's a real final message, son of mine. So let's make a few bets. I may be deceased, but that doesn't mean I can't engage in a little speculation. These are my theories about what's going on. On your end, right now. Theory 1. You, the person reading this, are certain to be William. I half-harbored a concern that the others might have taken some undue precautions upon reading the first message, but now that I've had time enough to think things over, I'm sure they won't. Patricia won't even bother. I doubt she sees the point in flipping on a computer so old it can barely run Windows 95. I don't know what she thinks I do up here, but I doubt she expects that it's anything she might care about after I've died. She'll regard this computer as an aged appliance and no more, something that takes up space and belongs in the trash. Kevin won't want to look at this for a different reason. He, I think, will want to forget to put as much distance between his memories of his dead father and his present life as he can, as fast as possible. He's always had a hard time dealing with things like death and, by consequence, life. Best of luck to him, because that kind of a problem sticks with a guy. But William, I think you'll read this. I think you'll need to read this. The way a sick drunk needs to puke. The feeling might need some time to build, and you'll probably even try to fight the urge at first. Postpone the inevitable a few weeks or months until you just can't take it anymore. Then you'll snap like a twig. I'm so sure of it that I've decided to focus on you from now on. The second theory. You're surprised that I had enough computer skills to time-lock these files. It is a little surprising, isn't it? A driven man will surprise you every time, Keep that in mind, son. The third theory is my least impressive deduction of all. The third theory is so firmly rooted in human nature, it's not even really a theory, it's just a fact. You are driving yourself crazy to know what's in the final message. I understand and sympathize, but we're going to need that next 24 hours, both you and I. Trust me on this. And trust me on one other thing as well. You might find that you'll end up wishing you weren't so sentimental, and that you didn't need to know so much. I almost feel bad about having to be the one to tell you. Almost. I haven't slept well since that second message. Why would I? I was unsettled. The undercurrent of all this was that my father was doing things that the rest of us knew nothing about, and they sounded like dark things. I tried to take my mind off the anticipation. I tried to wait for it without dwelling on the message to come. I tried watching some shows off the DVR, but realized after a while I wasn't really watching them, just looking at them. I tried going out for a jog, but I felt like I was running away instead of just running. I thought of ordering something to eat, but a quick look on my phone at the menu of food I ordinarily loved to order made it clear to me that I wasn't hungry. The merchandise in a catalog of luxury curtains would have looked just as appetizing. I decided to read something, but that was even worse than the TV. Scenes didn't come to life in my head. They remained dark words on a light page. I tried going to sleep. I got to know the pattern on the ceiling pretty well. But that was about it. Now I'm writing this diary. Tomorrow I will read the final message. File 3. FinalMessage.txt Now for the grand reveal. As I planned my scheme through long months of secret toils, I had come to expect that it would be the writing of this missive in which I would take my greatest pleasure. Yet now that time has come, I see that my secret will become unraveled in the telling. No longer something precious to be guarded, but simply a bald set of unpleasant facts. No, in reality, it is the fulfillment of the plan itself that gives me greatest joy, not the revealing of it. I've enjoyed this secret, and I've taken good care of it. I'm proud to say that neither Patricia, nor Kevin, nor even you, compassionate William, have suspected it. Not one whit. You may have suspected about the separate pieces, but never the whole. For example, I don't believe for a second that the keys of this computer have escaped your notice. The crunchy, gunky, chunky feel of them, as though your fingers' movements aren't soft depressions of spring-loaded plastic, but heavy trudges through thick and sodden snow. You may have even started for the can of air you so fastidiously clean your own keyboard with but don't think I haven't noticed that quality in you, William. But I have also noticed another, sloth. It is your tendency to laziness that has protected my aims in that regard. There's no way you've ever went all the way downstairs, grabbed the spray can, and actually followed through and cleaned the keyboard, only remarked to yourself about it. You do that a lot, my dear William. You remark a world of truth to yourself, subtle truths, Beautiful truths, and feel an undeserved sense of richness. I am of value, for I sense so much about the world, all good and proper, but without purpose, your sharp perceptions and subtle noticings are just an excuse to swim around inside your own head like a goldfish, whilst the real world rages on about you. You're all vision and no purpose. In a world that demands, we constantly ready ourselves not to bark. But to bite. You all, each in your own way, make me sick. I knew I had to escape this family from the beginning, but there was no real way to do it that I could see, so I hung around. You people were intolerable and my situation interminable, but still, what can you do? I didn't want to be that guy who slaughters his wife and children with an axe, because as tedious and insulting as I found spending life with all of you to be, I'm sure that life in prison would have been slightly worse. So I did what any self-respecting man in my position would do. I stewed in hatred for decades. That was the first of my lovely secrets. Even the hatred and despair and my mounting anger became things of great beauty in the crucible of self-imposed silence. When one walks around with such things hidden inside, it is a power that no boldly expressed truth could ever match. Still, the pleasure I took in this hate could only sustain a man like me for so long. I needed something more. When I first stumbled on another way, I saw its charms immediately. I recognized that this other way was the way. The way I've been waiting for. I saw the chance, and I leapt at it. Yet this leap took time and planning, preparation, and constant and willful attention towards my goal. I had a window of a few months, and throughout that span it was vital for me to remain focused. I began to work. This old computer was to be the gateway through which I would re-enter the world. It screened the portal through which my intentions would be made manifest. My studies taught me this much, that the dust and the hair and tissues already collected by the machine over time would speed the process up by many months. The monitor alone was already coated in a dusting of skin flakes. Over the years, the keyboard had become sticky with finger oils and partially clogged with dried bits of my scalp and flesh. I just needed to add to it, to focus it, and wait. I began to cut my hair differently. You didn't even notice. That's not the kind of thing you see, William. It was too plain and ped-
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look
0: five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC.
4: Pedestrian, too obvious. You never see a thing which is clear to all others. You only notice meager, insignificant, trifling things, and for this you call yourself subtle. But I digress. I started cutting my hair differently, shorter. I gathered a bag of clippings nearly every week and fed them into the intake vent on the computer terminal. It was lovely how quickly the exhaust fans clogged up. The next step was a little more unorthodox. I began to take as much anti-allergy medication as possible, to drink as little water as I could stand, to dry myself out. I stopped washing my hair, except, of course, just before my weekly hair trimmings, and collected the increasing dandruff. I let my finger and toenails grow long and then clipped them down in between the keys of this keyboard. I followed my instructions to the letter, I never had any doubt I would succeed. It was simple. I just needed to follow the instructions left by my dark teachers. I collected myself, poured myself into this machine, so that when the time came near, I had readied myself for the final step. The prime virtue of this was that I did not have to be near the computer to do it. That was the whole point of marshalling my physical life force inside it. My spirit, my instructors assured me, would know where to return, where to wait. As I drove along that back road, I knew that this moment, the one you are existing in now as you read this, would come. I knew because you, William, for all your subtle perceptions and rarefied personality, are absurdly predictable. However wise you credit yourself with being, you're the most simple-minded sheep I have ever seen in my life. If you ever think me wicked or cruel with my remarks, consider that, that it was you, your vacuous, effluvious brother, and your sock-headed monster of a mother, that drove me to do what I am doing now. I lined myself up with the telephone pole, and stopped the gas. I had no doubt it would kill me. And then, as you well know, I died. I died and came back to this machine. Now perhaps you understand why I've asked you to read the letters on consecutive nights. I had to gather my life essence in order to write this final letter in the night while you tried to sleep. This last letter represents the culmination of my whole scheme. The composing of the letter itself has been not quite satisfying, if only because I'm giving away my sweetest secrets and getting only kind of a dumb shock from you in return. But the fulfillment of the plan Ah, that is pleasure. A pleasure I am only too happy to avail myself of. I won't exactly enjoy piloting your puny body throughout my hard-earned second life, William. The memory of all the idiotic and tawdry things you've done to, and with it, will somewhat lessen my pleasure. I can't help but feeling that dealing with even that is greatly preferred to death. I've got a secret bank account, of which you, pretty darling William, have unknowingly been a joint holder, where I've squirreled away all the money I shall need to start my newer, happier life. But that won't stop my emptying your own account, consisting mostly, I'll warrant, of your share of the life insurance money you collected upon my death. And if you wonder how it is that I will get access to your account, I'm afraid you haven't quite got the picture. It's the same reason why I'm not afraid others will read this file and piece together what happened. This is how I'll do it. I'm going to use your fingers to write your name on the withdrawal slip. I'm going to use your hand to erase these files. You are how I will do everything now. Thank you for your cooperation, William. But this is the point where those eyes in your head stop working for you. You have read this far but you will read no farther. This is the point where I start seeing again. And you, silly, subtle, stupid William, cease to be. This is the moment where you feel a cold hand fall upon your shoulder. And I, at long last, come home.
2: That was Troy Blackford's Ghost in the Machine, as read to us by J. Wollert. Jay Wollert is a voice talent available for commercials, promos, trailers, book narration, animations, video games, PSAs, business products, and so forth. Link to his Blogspot website will be in the show notes. Also of interest, our former editor Cher Eves. You all remember her and her work on the podcast, yeah? She had compared his voice to Garrison Keeler, which I can certainly hear. Next up, Alan Baxter. We've heard from him pretty recently, so he's no stranger in these parts. Alan Baxter is an award-winning author of dark fantasy, horror, and sci-fi. He rides a motorcycle and loves his dog. He also teaches kung fu, read extracts from his novels, a novella, and short stories at his website, and find him on Twitter, at Alan Baxter, and also Facebook. Link to his website, alanbaxteronline.com, will be in the show notes. His most recent blog post mentions that this year he'll be in attendance at the saint Albans writers festival later this year if you happen to be heading north from sydney or south from newcastle on the eastern coast of australia you may want to swing through there if you're not likely to be in australia at the time i'd recommend checking out saint Albans' website i'm not much of a design nerd but it's quite pleasant getting back to fiction here is alan baxter's punishment in the sun
5: annie sat at her window staring across the darkness No moon and high thin clouds made the world beyond Stygian and dead, like her life. She knew the tack shed sat not far away. Beyond that stretched dry, dusty paddocks with dry, dusty horses, ribs like xylophone keys through thin, scabby hides. The orange desolation dragged on as far as hope would last in every direction. Too young to leave this desiccated hole, she grudgingly endured. A strike of lightning in the distance and Annie's heart skipped a beat. Her slumped pose in the window became rigid attention as she stared through the dark, impossible to tell how far away it had been. She grew desperate to see it again. Then another. Annie gasped, throat thickening with fear. A man, hands cupped around a lighter, his face briefly lit in orange glow and contrasting shadow. She could see two pinpricks of ruddy brightness, glowing and fading, well beyond the yard. She forced her sight to penetrate the dark. Every time a man drew a lungful of smoke, the cigarette acted like a weak torch, easing back the night. She saw other movement, more than two of them. They carried something, wrapped and heavy, moving easily, unencumbered by the darkness or weight. Across the distance she heard a metallic rattle. They were at the feed shed across the south paddock. She couldn't see it, but every inch of this station lay burdened across her mind like a scar. They were putting something in the feed shed. Annie rose soon after the sun as hot, early light crept across her bed. She dragged on shorts and T-shirt and trotted through the house. Her parents sat at the kitchen table, poring over paperwork. They drank acrid coffee while toast burned under the grill and her father moaned about taxes and levies. Annie headed for the door. "'Where you going?' her father asked. "'Gonna see Pebble?' "'Get back here!' Annie stopped, set her jaw. She turned back, huffing a deep sigh. She stood in the doorway, framed by sunlight. Will? Her father said. What? You know very well what. No play till your chores are done. I'll do them later. Her father scowled. You do as you're told. Annie gritted her teeth, desperate to investigate the shed. What difference does it make? Her father scraped back his chair, half rising. The difference is I told you to do them now. Annie looked to her mother, eyes pleading. Her mother just shook her head. "'Neither of you care about me?' Annie yelled. "'You only had children to do all your work for you. I hate you!' Her father growled, stepping around the table. Annie bolted before he could say or do more, heading into the utility room and the tools for her chores. An hour later, she finally got time to herself. Everything seemed to be about cleaning and fixing and tidying. A few more years and she'd be gone.' She skirted the tack-shed and climbed the gate of the south paddock. Sun-baked red earth puffed fine ochre dust with every slapping footstep as she ran. She approached the feed-shed and slowed. Her heart danced in her throat, and a chill leaped down her back. So fascinated by what she'd seen, her only thought had been to find out what those men were up to. Now came a second wave of thought, heavily tainted with trepidation. She glanced back towards the house, squat and peeling in the already ferocious sun. Perhaps she should tell her dad what she'd seen, but what did he care, or was telling her what to do? Swallowing her nerves, taking a stealing breath, she opened the shed door. Sunlight flooded into the musty darkness within, dust swirling in the shaft of day. She walked carefully into the gloom, looking all around the huge space. "'Plastic buckets and battered shovels lined the walls. "'Bales and giant plastic feed bags made haphazard mountains all around. "'Everything sat as dull as her life, "'except for a heavy-looking canvas dumped into a corner. "'Annie reached out one hand towards it, taking a corner, "'lifted it back. "'It lay empty, deflated against the shed wall. "'She saw a piece of thick yellowing paper on the floor. "'It bore a note.' "'Handwritten in dark red ink. "'You slew an elder, and your punishment is sun. "'Survive this trial, and your punishment is served. "'Fail to survive, and your punishment is served.' "'That didn't make sense. "'What kind of punishment was sun? "'Who was the note for?' she sighed. "'Looking around the musty shed, her eyes narrowed. "'Did she hear a scrape then? "'A sound of movement?' Sharp lines of incandescence marked gaps in the planks of the walls, painting bright stripes across the floor. She walked among them, looking into the shadows between the feed bags and the hay bales. It would take hours to search every nook and cranny. The distant sound of her dad cursing drifted through the air. She sighed again and headed back to the house. Annie's dad was furious. Her mum stood in the doorway, hands clasped. "'What do you mean, all of them?' She asked. I mean, all of them. Every fucking car, bike, quad, even the tractor and the backhoe. Some fuck has been in and ripped up the engine in every vehicle we own. Why? Her father spun on his heel, leaning across the yard in his anger. How do I know why? Her brothers stumbled from the house, rubbing sleep from their eyes. Useless, dopey teenagers, the pair of them. What's going on? Trent asked. "'Some of your friends having a lark!' Annie's dad yelled. "'Someone's been in during the night and ruined every vehicle we've got!' "'Why would it be our friends?' "'Josh, the eldest, seemed genuinely offended. "'Maybe it's yours, pissed off that you never cough up for a round on the rare occasion when you go to the pub.' "'Their dad pulled back one hand, striding across the dusty yard. "'Why, you little! Enough!' Annie's mum's voice cracked across the hot day, freezing everyone in their tracks." always the ultimate authority what's wrong with you josh you need to learn some respect bill calm down and call jerry at the police station see what he has to say bill pushed past his sons as if he'll be any bloody help Annie sat at the kitchen table while her father fumed and her mother cried her brothers quietened looked on the ruined remains of two satellite phones sat between them "'Do any of you know why someone might have done this to us?' her father said. "'They all shook their heads. "'Every vehicle ruined. "'The phone lines cut and the radio antenna is gone.' "'He pointed at the smashed set phones. "'To do this they came in the house.' "'Annie thought of the distant cigarette glows in the dark. "'She'd seen the men there but hadn't heard anything else. "'Would they have done this?' She fingered the strange note in her pocket, wondering if she should tell her father. But if she could figure this out on her own, perhaps they'd all stop treating her like a kid. She bit her lower lip nervously. "'Is this some kind of warning, Bill?' her mother asked. Her husband gave her a sharp look, said nothing. "'Can't we fix the phone line?' Trent asked. "'No. They've smashed the connection on the roof.' Annie's father drew a deep breath, standing. We need to act. I'll take a horse over to Bradley's place. Use his phone to call Jerry and get the police here. They can bring stuff to repair our vehicles and phone. I'll use Bradley's ute to get back. Josh, that puts you in charge. Josh nodded, looking young and terrified. Annie's mum looked stricken. Bill, it'll take you ten hours to ride to Bradley's. What else am I going to do? I CAN DO IT IN eight. Josh grunted. You'll kill the horse. Our nags aren't built or trained for that. So be it. Without another word he headed out, Josh running to catch up. It's all right, Mum, Trent said, sitting his jaw. We'll look after you. You're a good boy, Trent. Help your father. Annie's restlessness became unbearable. I'm going to feed the ponies. Her mother looked up, nodded. "'Don't go any further than that, okay?' In the yard, her brothers were arguing, trying to jerry-rig an antenna. Only a year apart in age, everything became more about competition than cooperation. Annie's stomach felt like heavy water. Anger had driven her to hold her tongue. It felt like a terrible mistake. She had to solve this. She reached the shed and heard scuffling as she pushed the door open. She froze in the spot, holding her breath, straining her ears. She stood still for close to a minute. Nothing. She pushed the door wide, walked cautiously in. Everything seemed as it had before. What had she heard moving? It had sounded too big for rats. She stalked through the big bales and bags, looking into corners and gaps. As she got deeper into the shed, away from the flood of sunlight through the open door, the shadows grew denser. Gaps in the shed walls here and there still cast bright slashes across the floor and feed. Everything in between a soft, dusty twilight. Enough to see by, too dim for detail. Maybe she should open the doors at the other end, let more light in. She pushed between two stacks of bales and something whipped past her with a hiss. The sound like someone in sudden pain sucking air in through their teeth. A smell of burning hair drifted through the gloom. Annie's heart hammered. She turned in a circle, trembling. Low panic gripped her as she retraced her steps, trying to look everywhere at once. Outside the hot day seemed as refreshing as a mountain stream. Her brothers looked at her disdainfully. "Something in the feed shed?" Josh asked. Annie nodded. "What?" "I don't know. It rushed past me." The brothers exchanged looks of derision. "Did you get scared by a big old rat?" "'Trent asked. Annie ground her teeth. "'What's wrong with you two? "'Don't you care about all the stuff being ruined? "'Something's going on.' "'Josh barked a humorous laugh. "'Yeah, of course. "'Dad's pissed someone off again and they're fucking with us. "'He probably owes someone money "'and all that stuff last night was a message.' Annie he frowned. "'What are you talking about?' "'Trent sighed. "'Dad's in big debt. "'The whole station is in trouble.' We reckon he's got caught up with a loan shark, and they're scaring him into paying up. Annie looked back over her shoulder. But what about the thing in the shed? What thing? you just spooked. No, I saw men last night in the dark. They were smoking cigarettes and doing something over there. Josh and Trent's eyes widened in shock. What? Josh sounded incredulous. Why didn't you say anything before? "'Because Dad pissed me off and I wanted to figure it out myself to prove I'm not a kid.' Annie looked at the red, dusty ground. Josh threw his shifter down. "'Fuck me, Annie. You are a little kid. You should have told Dad. When he gets back, you tell him.' She nodded. "'What about that?' She pointed at the feed shed. "'Someone's in there.' "'Why would someone hide in there, Annie? You're spooked out. Go inside.' Her brothers fought and argued over the radio and eventually gave up. Her mother coped as she always did, making too much food, baking, roasting, boiling things down to jam. Annie worried. Her dad would be furious when he got back. Her mother ran out of things to cook as the sun began to set. She sat at the kitchen table, hands tormenting a tea towel, staring out across the yard. Annie put an arm across her mother's shoulders. "'Dad'll be back soon. It'll be all right.' Her mother smiled, though it did nothing but move her lips. Sure, honey. The sun dipped below the horizon, dusky twilight turning everything to deep brown shadows. It's not really dark yet, Annie said. Her mother shrugged. Twilight or dark, same thing. Dad'll be back any minute. Where are your brothers? Annie looked out. Trying to fix up Josh's bike last time I saw them. Call them in for me. "'Annie headed around the house towards the big garage "'where the ute, bikes, and quads were kept. "'Something whooshed past her in the gloom. "'With a gasp and a swell of nerves, she stopped dead. "'She saw Trent walking towards her. "'Was that you?' she called out. "'What?' "'Something just brushed past me really fast.' "'Trent shook his head. Stupid kid. "'Mum wants you two inside. "'Whatever.' A crash and a yelp of pain sounded from the garage. Another crash, then a cry cut short. What the fuck? Trent turned. What are you doing in there, Josh, you dickhead? Annie felt a wave of foreboding spreading up her body. Trent, don't! He frowned at her. Don't what? She felt fixed to the spot. Trent pushed open the side door of the garage. With a yell like he had been burned, he staggered backwards. Annie started to cry. Trent turned and ran for the house. Annie, get inside now! What's happening? Trent ran, pumping his arms, face white. Run inside, Annie! A dark blur shot from the shadows beside the garage. Trent arched forward as the shadow hit him in the back, legs still running as he lifted into the air. He screamed, high-pitched like a girl. Annie cried out. Trent hit the ground and a tall, pale man knelt beside him, one hand pressed into Trent's chest, holding him down. The man had blood over his face, dripping from his chin. Annie screamed again, as her mother came running around the house. Her mother's scream mingled with Annie's as the man fell upon Trent, shaking him by the throat like a dog with a rabbit. Annie's mother skidded in the dust, raising something dark and shiny into the night. "'Get off him, you bastard!' Thunder and fire burst out. Annie winced, closing her eyes against the sound. She opened them as her mother fired the second barrel— But the man was nowhere to be seen. Trent lay still, his throat a shiny black mess in the gloom, his eyes staring wide into the darkening night. Annie screamed. He was in the shed! Her mother dropped her gaze to stare at Annie. What? What do you know? She whipped away from Annie's side like a sheet of paper caught in a sudden gust. Tears flooded Annie's vision. Through the haze she saw her mother land near the chicken pens, legs twisted beneath her, "'Mouth crooked in a snarl of pain, "'unseeing eyes staring at the ochre sand. "'The shotgun was nowhere to be seen. Annie fell to her knees, sobbing and gasping. "'A sucking slurping began to her left "'where Trent lay in the dirt, but she refused to look. "'Her mind trembled. "'She wanted to curl up and sleep, never to wake again. "'Another sound came distantly to her ears, "'a chattering, rumbling, drifting on the hot night air. She jumped to her feet, running as fast as she could, waving her arms. Daddy, Daddy, turn back! She saw her father's face behind the wheel, leaning forward, eyes narrow in concern. The ute skidded to a halt, and he almost fell from the door, dragging a point three o three with him. Annie, what's happened? Annie sobbed, trying to speak. Men, last night. Someone in the shed. Trent and Mummy, he's coming. Her father grabbed her, looking hard into her eyes. "'Where is everyone?' Annie cried so hard she couldn't speak. Her entire body shook. Her knees threatened to fold up. She felt vomit rising. Her father picked her up, put her into the passenger seat. "'Stay here. Lock the doors, and don't open them for anyone.' He ran off into the darkness. Annie shook her head, whispering, "'No, no, no!' A howl of soul-tearing anguish echoed back to her. She heard shouts, then gunshots, as her crying hitched to a quiet trembling— everything around the station fell to silence. Complete darkness settled over the ute, impenetrable. She could only see her reflection, gossamer faint in the windows. Movement outside made her hold her breath. A shuffling, a slight cough. She dropped into the footwell as the passenger's door jiggled, locked shut. The scuffling retreated around the ute. She looked up, eyes widening as she saw the driver's door closed but not locked. The door opened and the pale man slipped in, smiling at her, two teeth extended long over his bottom lip, sharp and shiny white. His face was clean, but his shirt front and collar stained a darker blue than the rest. "'Hi, Annie.' She stayed down, curled as tightly as possible, shaking so much her teeth chattered. He leaned across and unlocked the passenger door and pushed it open. "'I've been watching you, trying to figure it out,' he laughed." "'I'm too full for more, even a little one. "'But I'll see you again, one day.' "'Annie stared, frozen. "'Get out.' "'She uncurled her legs, sliding off the footplate and dropped to her knees in the dirt. "'The ute shuddered into life, big engine roaring. "'With a spin of tyres it drove into the night, leaving Annie kneeling in the cloud of dust.' Within moments, the darkness and silence had settled over her again.
2: That was Alan Baxter's Punishment in the Sun, as read to us by Ashley Story. Aged 11, Ashley performed her first ever stand-up comedy routine at the International Women's Day celebrations in Glasgow and went on to do stand-up in London, supporting the likes of Omid Dejali and Donna McPhail. And she appeared on the London Tonight TV show. In 1999, still only 13, she wrote, produced, and performed her own show, What Were You Doing When You Were 13, at the Edinburgh Fringe, becoming the youngest ever stand-up in the history of the festival. She received rave reviews and was guest presenter on the Disney Channel that same year. She continued to perform comedy in pubs and clubs around Glasgow and the UK until she took up PR and started her own small business, age 16, at the Edinburgh Fringe, promoting stand-up comics and theatre groups. In 2013, she co-directed her mother Janie's play, The Point of Yes, at the Edinburgh Fringe and subsequently at the Soho Theatre in 2004. The two wrote and performed together in their comedy sketch show, Square Street, at the 2006 Edinburgh Fringe. Ashley graduated with honors from her Film and Screenplay Studies degree course and has since been directing and writing for BBC Radio and TV. Ashley now does weekly podcast with her mother called Janie Godley's Podcast and has returned to the stand-up comedy scene. Thank you, Ashley. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Take care of each other and come see us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.